0: strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory, live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words.
1: Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octo is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. He's the author of Think Like a Marine, Anticipate, Adapt, and Achieve. Mark Hardy, owner of Decision Point LTD UK, he excels in fostering adaptive and resilient teams. Founder of the Reset Performance Coaching, he challenges high performance burnout culture and the passive wellness counter by emphasizing consistent and disciplined active rest and growth. He is a former Lieutenant Colonel in the British Royal Marine Commandos. With a passion for inspiring others and creating future leaders who are ready now to be better than Gen X. Mark, first of all, I love our conversations and I've loved everything that you've talked about, especially what you're talking about on social. And we met through the Plato's Academy, through Donald Robertson and the incredible Stoics there. And we just seemed literally cut from a very similar cloth. So thank you for taking the time and being on here. And I'm looking forward to this conversation.
2: No, thank you, Marcus. I really appreciate the opportunity. Of course, um, to talk to your audience or listen to you
1: as well. I mean, that's always <laughs> that's always good. Um, yeah, they're fantastic. And the Stoic philosophy—it's—it's it's very popular now. And you and I were mentioning how that Stoicism, whether we label it as that or not this has been throughout any sort of organized military for centuries people go to this place of understanding that there is hardship of of allowing that hardship to bind us as a team and then learning to be able to lead through that chaos in a way that's very not only empowering but literally the difference between life and death many times yeah i'm amazed
2: how late i discovered it in my life i mean i know it's not you know epictetus is not the kind of top end of the philosophers that people go for but But actually, when you really get into it, it's the the idea of, you know, some of the best moments of my life were, you know, being on operations with other Marines and soldiers because doing something meaningful, but also being outside, being, you know, on campaign or whatever you wanted to call it, you know, sleeping, being in the field, all the different things you do where the three parts I say to our, you don't get that environment without going through, so you have to go through some form of training yeah. or, and conditioning. And, you know, we're all caught up in the advertising and the recruiting advertising, and, and it's it's so seductive, you know, and the, the Royal Marines have just released some fantastic new adverts on Instagram, you know, you know, that would make me want to go back. And then in my head is the kind of, yeah, I remember being on a you know rigid inflatable boat, at night in the english channel being absolutely freezing cold trying to put on a kind of good stoic face when it was just that the, you know it's a horrible experience or just carrying weight you know you were light infantry carrying absolutely. the weight all day long and you do get conditioned to it but there's an element of of a certain point where you are just there's no there's nothing pleasant about it you can't explain the discomfort you can't explain the, the psychological things going on on your head as you're kind of putting one front in front of the other and the different mm-hmm. ways of, oh, this is really bad. And then sometimes it's not. And then you look around and someone's suffering more than you because they've got the radio or they've got their carrying habit. So it's always... there's always yeah, they're carrying else. more rounds, yeah. So, yeah, I, I kind of... I find myself with the Stoic philosophy finding it very, very helpful at one point and very challenging at the same time. And I think... I'd love to hear your view of it, which is there's this element of of someone who practices Stoic philosophy has no emotions. There's this element of someone who practices Stoic philosophy can watch someone else suffering and not care. And I don't think that's as it was intended. No, I see Stoic philosophy as a a form of philosophical body armour that is protective, but you can take it off. And it's protective and there are gaps and there are weak spots and stronger spots. And, and actually it's that constant attention to, to how you are feeling yourself as to how close, you know, how tight you hold it. If that makes sense, with anything, with any philosophy, with any kind of practice, there are times when it, you don't need it. Life is good. And you can put it on the shelf and just know where it's somewhere. Right, And there are other times when every day you would be up and you would be kind of, this is what I need to do today.
1: And I think that's where the skill is, is understanding when there's a time that if we're in the, the face of battle, we don't have the luxury of being philosophical. We don't have the luxury of having a lot of excessive compassion because that doesn't serve us in this situation. We're not immune to the emotion, but we understand that at this moment, it's not going to serve us to execute what we need to do. There's a time and a place thereafter. But if I allow that to seep in when I should be laser focused on whatever the objective is or whatever this area is, then it's going to impede my capacity to do it correctly. And now maybe I'm at risk, men around me are at risk, or these things that I'm fighting so dearly to defend are at risk because I did not have the capacity to focus on what's more important. All of these things that we're talking about are important. And any philosophy or religion that's worth its salt will discuss anger. They'll discuss these feelings. But the ones that tell you that they don't exist or to just stuff them down, that's not what we're talking about. We're saying deal with them, understand when to do it, and then understand what the emotion is telling us. I can feel anger, but I don't allow it to project into an angry activity unless it's something that's going to serve me. So yeah. when I have when I have no other options and we had the 50% ruck and you have half your body weight in the ruck and it's freezing cold and it's a 25-mile forced ruck march and it sucks sometimes that anger is all you have and you channel that. Now, long-term, is it good for us? Probably not. Is it corrosive? Yes. Is it sustainable? Not really. But in that moment, if we have nothing else, if we can learn to accept what it's doing for us, now we we are the ones that are the ruler of it as opposed to it being the ruler of us because that stops us from being able to accomplish the mission. And I believe that stoicism, like you said, sometimes people just look at the top of it, which is... You know, like what does Donald say? There's the small s and there's the capital s. Yeah. The you know stiff upper lip. You know, keep your face. You know, just completely robotic. You know, there's a lot more to it. Dare I say that anybody that studies philosophy has deeper understanding of emotions than people that do not.
2: Yeah, I mean, any philosophy, and I think when you find you go back, and you say, okay, well, there was elements of Stoicism with with and there's not a lot left of what what he. You know, fragments, I think it is called fragments. I mean, there's not yes, much left. Yes, yes. And then you get to Socrates, who, you know, we only know really about Socrates, he was a soldier, we know that. Yeah. We know that Plato wrote down what Socrates said. We know mm-hmm. that Plato taught Aristotle. We know that Aristotle was Alexander the Great's tutor mm-hmm. yes. We knew that we know that Socrates, Confucius, Buddha all live within a similar time period. Yes. And they all came with very similar whether it's Eastern philosophy or it And it, it's the idea of like, you know, actually, you have power over yourself. Your views, your opinions. People can reel them off far better than me. Of, but you you have to find the power, and sometimes you need some help. So, you know, when let go back to the book. I was it was this idea of what am I trying to say? Not just British Royal Marines, but Marines in general, yes. and and in, and actually quite a lot of soldiers. Anyone who's been through military training, good military training. Tough military training, conditioning military training, is the first period, the first basic training. It's called basic training for a reason, is just you looking after yourself. You know, the first five weeks is just put your own clothes on, keep you, wash yourself. Can you wash yourself? You know, marines training starts day one with just being taught how to shower and shave. And people are. That's ridiculous. Surely people know how to share, and share It's like no. Some people haven't had that upbringing. Some, you know, we recruit from all over the place, and and a lot of people join the military to get out of the places they were in. Yes. Uh, and if they're lucky, they will have a good training team who understand the progressive nature of training and understand that they, that people will make mistakes and understand that there is. Not just a learning curve, but a, there's a there's a big drop mm-hmm. when you start learning something. Sometimes, but the early activity of just okay, everything's done for you. You know, the training team are there. The, the timetable is there. This is how we roll. You are going to march around here as a group, so you all get to the same place on time. Um, You're going to arrive before a class five minutes early. You're going to do all these different things. Early on, that the, one of the section leaders will be there making that happen. But within a few weeks there'll be a duty student and he'll he or she'll be making that but it's very small steps how to cook in the field how to clean your own weapon how to keep your feet clean how to you know sleep how to do a different routines it's very very basic stuff and for some that's very very hard just sleeping outside in nature is hard if you've been brought up in a city right but the point is you don't do it on your own and all of that time spent learning how to fold your kit and put it in a locker. Back in 2010, my job as a company commander was overseeing commando training, recruit training, and, and what was called the all arms commando course, which would be um, the equivalent of ranger school um, rather than the ranger regiment. Right. You know, I'd go around, I'd do inspections, and when I when I was a ma- as a major, an 03 major did inspections, they'd been inspected all week before I got before I got What's to me. Yeah. you know this is the big one they've got to pass and by which point you know that that's they've been their section corporal or their squad leader their troop command inspected them then it's me so by this point they should be squared away and a good inspection if you are supervising someone if you're responsible for someone else a good inspection is not about there's an element of cleanliness there's an element of neatness but what you're doing is you're checking the recruit to see if they are keeping up with the training. And you get to look them in the eye, and you get to ask some questions and say, how's it going? And you get to look in their locker, and because every locker is laid out the same, I would sit there and go, I'd go in and close the door and go, why do we get inspected? And it was normally, well, you know, and they had all kinds of stories of all their kit being thrown out the window for, for one discrepancy, and things being overturned, and then having new inspections and just their time being taken away from them yes, as a demonstration of the consequence of failure is you're going to have to do all this again. And I was like, the purpose of the inspection is not to find fault. The purpose of the inspection is to check that you're okay. And like, if you, where's your bayonet? Well, have you only got two magazines instead of four magazines? You've only got one shirt and you should have four shirts. Where's your, you know, where are these items? The reason we laid them out in the locker is so I can check. Oh, I've lost it. Have you been to the stores? Have you got a new one? Because then they're learning that if I lose something, then the, when I need to replace it, because this, this is important. A water bottle is important. My magazines are important. So we go through an inspection and then sometimes I'd have to go into the training and go, you know, they've passed the inspection. I'm not really sure you have. Um, and, but the whole point about doing this work is it's an element of anticipating. So you're, you're teaching them to anticipate because the end of every day the end of every day they clean everything wash everything put stuff that needs to dry in a drying room they lay out their kit for the next morning before they go to bed okay so there's they book ending the day with this is what needs to be done oh i'm not just gonna get in in the kit i'm in and get into bed okay some of them may do that and they will they will find they've got less time in the morning rather than more time in the morning. <laughs> Indeed. But you, so you go through these things and you say, okay, wh- why do I have to do all this stuff? It's like, okay, because I need you ready. This is all about readiness. You close the day off and you clean everything. You clean everything down. Chefs do it in restaurants. They clean down at the end of the day. So they're ready for the next day. And that anticipation is a vital part of readiness, but it's not necessarily psychological anticipation. Sometimes mm-hmm. anticipation is you just having your kit squared away and also getting to bed and sleeping because it counts and then you look at stoic philosophy and you go well what's the central tenant is get yourself squared away improve yourself before you try and improve someone else yes and you know we come back to actions not words okay because we know if, if i'm not squared away as a boss or as a leader as a ceo but i stroll around the office yes telling people punishing people you know just And I'm not, I'm not doing the things that I'm, I'm expecting them to do. They don't, the words don't matter. They just see the behavior. Okay. And, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure you go into businesses too, where the, the company values are up on the board, Mm -hmm. big poster, glossy poster and no one's showing it. No one's behaving. No one's showing those virtues or values. They're just. They're an exercise in corporate bullshit. Whether it's parenting, whether it's at work, whether it's coaching, whether it's teaching martial arts, whether it's training soldiers,
1: they are watching. You're being watched all the time, and that's you. Are, you know that's a, you are being watched. Yeah, they say as a leader, the best way to lead is by example. But the reality is, yeah. we are always setting an example. And as you say, if we have core values on the wall and it says all these things, and the leader's not doing it, what is it? It's a demonstration of hypocrisy. It looks yeah. like failure every time they come up there. So that reinforces them negatively, as you're saying. So if we're the leaders and we're not willing to do it, if we're not able to do it, then like you said, we have to square ourselves away first. We can never expect people to go beyond our own expectation. And if we've done that, what does Jocka talk about? Leadership, capital, belief. Yeah. yeah. Buy-in. That's what that is. As a just like yourself, I mean, you had to be in the condition to be able to do above and beyond what you're asking your guys to do and that's why you were able to get the kind of respect that you did nobody's going to follow that man into combat if they don't think that he's willing to do those things it comes back to all that right
2: yeah i mean when i was um you know i wrote the book after i did a job as a lieutenant colonel where we were dealing with some organizational things that had gone wrong and we had to go back to kind of what what is the what is, it, what is the point? Why Royal Marines Commandos in the first place? Because we weren't always Commandos, it was just Royal Marines. And the Commandos started in World War II. That's not the first time the idea of differently trained, specially trained troops began because the Germans had already started it you know, with the storm troops. And, and you can go back to Rogers Rangers and you go back again yes. to Nelson, and you can go back again. You can keep going back and you'll find the kind of, brute force and the cunning bit of using the right. two, whether it's Chi and chang in, in, in sort of Sun Tzu, you know, yes. you've always got to have some Chi as well as Cheng. And and as soon as the enemy sees your Chi, then you've got to come up with some new. Yes. You know, and that's the adaptation thing. So I went back I went back and I went back and, and the Raw Marines, we we'd always had the commando spirit and it was all over the camp. And that, you know, that was for that was courage, determination, unselfishness and cheerfulness. As four qualities that we valued, we thought were important, and but those values were tested on a four-week commando course. So there'd be three weeks of field exercises, doing as much as possible to simulate operational tempo, unpredictability, uncertainty. Just making sure the guys were ready. They could be in in, in the accommodation block one minute, and the phone would go, and they'd be they would never know what was coming next yeah. for three weeks. They knew there was stuff going on, but the train the train team could mix it up. And then at the end of it, they'd do the commando tests. And I, and I went back and I eventually found this book from 1952 when they'd started to just structure the commando course a bit more. So if few I, I mentioned those four elements with the great elements, you know, courage, great. The kind of what I think it was Aristotle or even someone else say, you know, courage is of all the virtues. Courage is the one that gives all the other ones, Yes, allows all the other ones to have merit. Yeah. Determination. Of course, we want determination. You know, we're, we're going to be going into the fight. Unselfishness, which comes down to, you know, Looking after well, unselfishness. Two parts of it. You can't look after someone else unless you're squared away. So unselfishness is is like you know put your own oxygen mask on, and then go and help someone else. And then the cheerfulness. Now I went back to this book, 1952 book, the Basic Commando Course, and it had the original, the first iteration I could find of the Commando Spirit. I'm going to read this out because it's slightly different, and we're going to get back to your story of adversity mm-hmm. and and bad conditions and it's very subtle, but it's very key so it says the commando spirit morale training is far more important than any other particular attention will be paid to determination enthusiasm and cheerfulness especially under bad conditions individual initiative and self-reliance and comradeship. Okay, comradeship. This is 1952, post Raw Marines have been in Korea with the uh, U.S. Marine Corps and 4-1 and, and Commander have been in Korea around Chosen Reservoir. Although provision is made in the course for specific physical tests, it is important that morale training should be continuous and unremitting throughout the course. The Marines must get the offensive spirit the commando way. Physical tests themselves are, are an important factor in producing self-confidence and a sense of achievement. But the spirit in which they are taken is, however, of supreme importance. It is all in the mind and heart. Yes. So it's longer. It doesn't roll off the tongue. But there's more in that paragraph. There's stoic philosophy in that paragraph. There's initiative and independence and mission command. And there's, you know, all that kind of initiative and self-reliance. That's why, you know, i read that and I was like, that's why I wanted to be a Romarek. That's what I, the best Marines I worked with displayed that all the time. The purpose of the command, of course, is put people under adverse conditions and look for those. Say, so, but be, be really clear. This is what we're looking for. And when it's hard, we expect to see this when it gets hard. I expect to see you cheerfully climbing up that cliff. I expect to see you cheerfully doing that load carry or at least finding a way to smile or finding a way to do it. And then, so you go, like, determination, yeah, that's still there. And you've got to have that. You've got to just be that kind of step forward, keep going forward, keep going forward. But the enthusiasm and cheerfulness, especially under bad conditions, that is not an easy thing. And it's one thing to say the environment, the environment can give those conditions. It can be cold, it can be wet, it can be dark, it can be hot. Before the enemies even got involved. Yes. Okay, the environment is dangerous. You know, marines operate from the Arctic to the jungle to the desert. We operate full span, Arctic Circle minus 30. The the environment alone will kill you. Let alone someone with a weapon, or a radio with an artillery battery at the other end of it. But it's that these things are important for life. This these you know determination is important for life. Cheerfulness under bad conditions is is important. You know, it changes everything. Individual initiative, self reliance. You know, that's stoic philosophy in a one-er. And then the comradeship is really interesting. Comradeship, not friendship. So comradeship is where the unselfishness bit, which is if you're a Marine, if you're a soldier, if you're a fellow operator, we have a bond. We'll look after each other. That doesn't mean we're friends because there are some assholes yeah. in the workplace. Absolutely. Okay? Who you're not going to be friends with. Your, va- your values, your attitudes, don't. there's no alignment there. But if you both have an idea that comradeship is important, you will still look out for each other and not try and stitch each other. And I think, you know, if when I go into businesses and I see values and and they tell me what their values are, sometimes what they read like is what you wanted to do is put the vices up, but what you've done instead is put the counters up in the hope that that will stop the vice. Because for every virtue, there is a vice. And that comes down to the – and courage is the choice – choose the virtue not the vice and and the vice can be the easy route and you know we're we're all human we can sometimes under different conditions choose the easy option and i think all that's that combination was part of the anticipate element as well of we're going to put you into challenging situations and the only way through is by working together there are plenty of operators out there who work on their own. There's plenty of 007s and James Bond. There are people who walk across the polar ice caps alone, unsupported. But there's not many of them. And if anything, and they can be great. You can get them in. They can do an amazing talk about how they crossed the Antarctic unsupported on their own. And it, and and this is the lessons and these are the things I have. And it's like going, you know, you could have done it with someone else. It would have been more enjoyable. Maybe you could have done it twice if you had a buddy. You could have gone back the other way. I don't know. You know, you can, you can have these things. I'm not I'm not a one person crossing the Antarctic. I like teams. I like working with other people. I like making connections um, and going from there. And so I get where, where enthusiasm and cheerfulness under bad conditions really helped me. So uh, from about 2007 to 2010, um, I, I left operational units and I got promoted and I was in the, the Navy headquarters in Britain. And my job was working with death. So I was also officer responsible for repatriating Royal Marines fatalities, running the ceremonies on the day. So, um, organizing the return of the fallen Marine. At one end, there'd be a the thing called a ramp ceremony, which was the guys sending their friend home, which was, and the plane would take off and that, you know, heavy with symbolism. And then I'd, I'd receive it at the other end with the family. And I'd meet the family in the morning and I'd breathe them on the day. And then we, not me on my own, there was a team from the RAF and a team and members of the army there, but we were the, there to support the family and support the senior officers who were there to represent the service, as this unbelievably difficult thing occurred. Which is, you know, this is your son, daughter coming home, and I had no, I had no idea that it didn't have any training. I'd lost a marine in my troop when I was very young, when I first um, joined. A young marine was killed just on a weekend, and and that was my first experience of it. I lost a Marine in a unit mountain training on a, in an accident in the mountains. And I dealt with the kind of process around that and support the family there. So I'd had this experience before, but I'd never spent so much time with the intensity of, of grief. And, and it's a, you know, each Portland Marine would be allowed to invite seven, there'd be seven family members. And I did that over the course of three years. Sometimes working with the army, bringing soldiers back and marines at the same time. Sometimes just marines. The busiest day we had was seven. Come back on one day, seven families, nearly fifty grieving families in the room. And so, so you know, I don't talk about this very often because um it is a. It was too much for me at the time. I, you know, I saw it as a duty, but I didn't have the skill. I didn't have the knowledge of, when I first started doing. It. And over time I learned, but I was very much doing on my own. And I felt at the time I was unsupported by, by the people I worked for. Um, for exactly that reason, which is they, people are so uncomfortable with it. Yeah. It's, it's something to endure and get through. If you are the, if you're the officer taking the salute on a day and you've got to meet the families, that's a hard thing because we're not taught. No one's really taught how to do that. What you're given is a uniform. You're given some body armor. You can hide behind the uniform if you want, but it's a human thing. And, we used to call it the, the the line and sigh. Oh, a sigh was the wrong word. Because we'd separate, we'd have the military officers in one room and the families in another. And I'd have to warn them, I'd say, you know, we're going to go in the room now and you're going to feel this. You're going to feel it. You, you feel grief in the air. And you'd open the door and, you, and it would be like a wave. <laughs> and you'd go and you'd introduce them and you'd, and you'd move around the families and... You try and be as human as possible, but you're trying not to join them in the same emotional state because because you've still got to do your job. But it's it's emotionally charged. And even in one family of seven that someone is coping, someone is cheerful, someone is, you know, and they're all working together to support each other normally. Sometimes there were fractures because they were found fam- split families who came together on the day and they hadn't been this is the thing that brings them together is a tragedy rather than rather than something joyous. But I kept, you know, I kept trying to learn. Um and, and I kind of learned as much as I could about coroners inquests learn learned as much as I could about the body handling and about the nature of the explosions and the nature of the ID bus that was that was doing these things. So I ended up having an awful lot of knowledge that was helpful for me, but it was also meant I could support the families better when we when they asked for more information. Because there was always someone there who wanted to know the details. And we were very candid with that, yeah, we'll if we don't know now, but we will tell you. You know, even on those days, there was cheerfulness in amongst it. There was there was joy and laughter sometimes in amongst the sadness, and that's when I first discovered Stoic philosophy. That was the first point. I'd never heard of it before, and there was, there was two things that got me through. One was my wife, who, you know, we were very early married, and it was it was just it wasn't fair for her as a just relative new in the military to to suddenly be exposed to this thing that was going on. Um, so she had, a, you know, it was a, we literally married in two thousand and eight, and I was doing the job during that period. So that was a pretty challenging time for her. And the other part was this: this stoic philosophy, specifically through reading James Stockdale. Stoic warriors triad was the very first one. So it was a, it was a kind of paper of, and and the thing that really resonated was that there are things you can control, and there are things outside of you. And that's when I was like, okay. A, I can anticipate how the day's going to be, having done a couple now. So I can prepare myself better for the day. I can make sure my kit's ready. I can have spare kit because there's always somebody who turns up without something. So I had a box of space. So I had all these different things. of like look, There's a day, things I can do before the day that will help the day move smoother. And guess what? I've been trained. I've been trained to prepare for things like this. Yes. There's elements I can do to make, to just anticipate the things that could go wrong. And there could be a delay. The flight would be delayed, that this would happen. But then, and all that work was good, knowing full well that during the day, having done all the planning for a week before it, having learned about all the family members who were going to meet, having learned who was going to come, that on the day, it could still go wrong. When you're briefing a family, when you're trying to kind of welcome a family to a day like that, you can say things, get things wrong. And... And there's anger in the room and there's all the, there's the whole Kubler-Rice cycle can be there in, yeah, in, in a half an hour briefing it all, everyone goes through. Yeah. So you're constantly having to adapt and change and think, right, I'm going to have to just help. Every family's different and you've got to help them through in a different way. And then remarkably, they're all amazing. They're, they're getting, they are in the main, supporting each other. It's one thing to lose a family member who has aged, old age, lived a great life it's another thing to lose someone who's 18, 20 years old who yeah. did a job that they wanted to do. And then we have this thing. So, And you see them come together and you see all the pride and you see all these. And I was just, uh, every family I met, I was just amazed and inspired and just, I could not do more for them, but also it was relentless. There was a period in 2010 where we were just there a lot. So I think that that learning about death, discovering stoicism, at the same time, was you know I'm really glad, but also I'm kind of there's part of me that would rather it not. <laughs> you know I was I was there. I think I was the right person at the right time, and I'm proud of what I did. But it you know it it's it still affects me now. It's ten years, thirteen years um, since doing it, and like I say, I can talk to someone about it, say this is a job I did, and and they will go. Whoa. And yet there are people doing this kind of work all the time, police officers. Uh, you know, undertakers and hospitals they're they dealing with. And I think what, what Stoic philosophy had we do was deal with it as a human, as as me. What I could do was hide behind the uniform and I could have had some briefing cards and just been very dum-dum-dum-dum and protect myself. And certainly, and I don't um, blame them for it, is that that's, that's certainly how some officers could have been were, were sometimes, because it's too much so that that and so you know death is part of stoicism it's you know the you could leave this right life right now you know you've I got know. to live a good life you want to live a good life so that it could, because it could just be you know life is fragile and you know yourself from your injury that yeah. you know one minute and then the next
1: yeah.
2: you are in this kind of
1: place that doesn't seem to end yeah. there's there's uh, no way out right yeah god never no, we'll get to that later yeah. um yeah <laughs> and so and and quickly, I'd like to add, there's a, a friend of mine, he's an officer, he's a lieutenant in Los Angeles, he's a policeman there, and he was discussing this idea that, you know, he said, when you're preparing the officer to go out and he goes to the academy, he learns, you know, tap, rack, clear yeah. for his pistol, he learns the double feed, he learns the stovetop, these are all malfunctions in a weapon. And he says, but in reality, the likelihood of that occurring is usually in the single digits. We're usually in a very controlled environment. We're not in Afghanistan. There's no sand. The weapon's pretty much pristine if you ever have to unholster it. But he said the thing, they make sure you're doing that, you know, qualifying with that all the time. The thing that they don't give you is kind of like what you were discussing, which is you're going to have this trauma every single day. And lots of times there are not always tools at your disposal where you can just slap rack and clear this thing, where you can just call for backup, where you can just say, okay, this has happened before, this is what I do. And then, as you were saying, uh, an officer like in the capacity that you were in, uh, an undertaker, you're literally seeing these people at the worst day in their life. Yeah. And for him, he said, sometimes that was your first call on a Monday, and you still have 11 more hours of this shift. And by the way, you're working four four in a row. And he was saying... Go ahead.
2: No, it's the, it's a bit of going. You know, you can you can practice it like you can practice anything else. You can do scenarios, but you can't. You can do a simulation. You can you can sit in a course and do an active listening course, and you can you can do a role play. Okay. Right. And and I've done lots of role plays for all sorts of things. Um, you know, you go on the ranges, you shoot. You know, the the classic. You can only fight the way you practice. Yeah. You know, is is part of it. It's like. But, and this is where I come to, you know, my interest in, in humans and how we perform in adversity, which is you can be enthusiastic and cheerfulness, cheerful in adversity. If you trained, but if you haven't, it's just adversity. It's just hard. And, and what you can't do in a role play for people who work with death and grief and, and, and family members who are all responding differently in different ways is is that that pressure wave of grief that it has power. I mean it's it's you know it is visceral. You feel it. You can't simulate that. You can't get someone to be that sad in a role play. And until you grieve you can't you cannot possibly understand grief. So it's a thing of going, well, how do we practice doing this? Well we talk about it. We should talk about it. And, and then, but also, it's always helpful if someone has been there before. It's always helpful if someone is able to just be the best funerals I've been. I say the best funerals. It's a ridiculous thing to say. The best funerals I've been to have been joyous. Have been a celebration of life and a life lived, not the kind of tragedy. Not the emphasis I can, you know. And and again, stoic philosophy is like you know, you could leave this life right now, which means that the person you love could move this moment as well. And it's the case again. I'm going to feel. I'm going to feel this grief. I've got to sit with it. I've got to accept it. I've got to accept the reality of the situation because I can't change it. And it, that kind of it, it started to lead me down this path from Stoic philosophy, which was, you know, you can control what you can control, and these are externals. Into into the the human forms of adversity. Into you know how we teach and coach people in the workplace. So here's the thing, and you you do martial arts, and I'd be interested to hear your view on this. Is Is a human under pressure becomes unpredictable unless they've been trained to work under pressure. Okay, so when you're training martial arts or you've got a new a beginner, okay, and you put them under a bit of pressure, then they start lashing out, and you have no idea what they're going to do next because they're not doing any they're not doing any things you expect them to do. They are literally just the redness has come up, and they are. Yeah. Now you, you're, you're in control and you're under pressure you've been trained but they have—they now are, are, are unpredictable it doesn't mean they're not easy to manage but put them in the workplace and put them under pressure people become un, unpredictable if they're not being conditioned that's why we do the training the way we do it and the other thing so I mean I'm, I'm curious as to your view on that you know uh, studying martial arts and working you know I think you were on with Tony Blair. Just the other day
1: yeah, yesterday we we discussed that very thing, and it and it's very true. there's and it's interesting as well because there's a lot of martial artists that will even say what you're saying, which is, I'm an upper belt. I don't like training with these younger people because they're unpredictable. But to me, I was always of the opinion. I was like, I don't care what level of black belt I am. I want to because this is a representation of a cross section of what I may be up against, yeah, possibly soon. So, if anything, it doesn't mean that I want somebody that's well polished, that's not giving me the typical two or three responses. I want that person that's kind of spazzing out and kind of flipping all out of place because that's the very person I may have to defend myself or other people against. Yeah. So I welcome that. And if I'm not willing to do that, then that shows me maybe there's an area where either my ego is, I'm trying to justify it, or maybe I'm just being honest with the fact that I don't feel like I want to do what's necessary to really do the work and that's that's on me not that person yeah yeah so that's and if the you've done the
2: if you've done the work and you are out and you know you're out walking and you're out and, and you encounter someone you bump into someone you're in a bar or whatever else and and if and you go into a, you go into your your stance, and you mm-hmm. if they do the same you've probably got a way out As then you can just go you know what we should probably just talk because we're this is not a thing right um, whereas if they don't, you already know they're not, they're not trained because any, anyone who's done any kind of, whether it's martial arts or western boxing or any kind of, there is a start point. There is a, you know, yes. Of and it, what is it? It's balance. It's readiness. It's anticipation. There it is. yeah. You know, and it's planting your feet and breathing and getting yourself getting your heart rate up, not necessarily down. So bringing yourself up to readiness, and you're improving your reaction times and all those kind of things. So I sit there and I go, okay. What we're trying to do in the workplace is we're trying to teach people those things. We're like, "Look, when work is, if we're about to be under pressure financially, if we're about to be under pressure with a load of work, let's make sure we're ready for it, and let's make sure I, as a leader, am demonstrating how we deal with pressure at work." So the idea is, you know, a human under pressure is unpredictable unless you train them. They're unpredictable, and they'll forget something. They will make mistakes. If you put pressure on a human, they'll make mistakes unless they're trained. You know, at, the, at one end of it, a magician in Vegas is putting pressure on the audience, cognitive pressure on the audience, through all the noise and the light and the showgirls and the distraction. They're doing all of that. They're overloading you cognitively. So you make a mistake. And that's when they do the trick. Oh, the slip, okay, side of hand, yeah. or whatever it might be. You know, I'm not a with magic circle, but you know, and and hey, guess what they're super skilled. But p- part of magic is understanding human finitude, understanding distraction, understanding that we can just put load people up and they will something will drop, you know. So, but unless they've been trained, unless they've done some kind of observation training, they might, you know, you might sit there and go. And a magician in the audience is not looking. He's looking for how the magician did it because they're in the same bit. So they're, they're, they're joining, same as a martial artist, he's going to look at how did he do that? Why is he doing that? So he can adapt or use it himself later. So then you have working under pressure, whether it's a legal firm, whether it's a guy. Working under pressure, just giving someone more work to do with unrealistic deadlines and, and overload is not training someone to work under pressure. No. It's just overload. And pushing someone to burnout however that might be, whether it's cultural, whether it's from just how things are done, is not teaching someone to work under pressure. Okay. And an abusive instructor in military training who decides that that the weather and the, the load that they're carrying and the kind of scenario they're in needs, needs some added value of an asshole instructor making them do press-ups in the rain in the dark, out of sight of, you know, the, the the officer or bullying someone or kicking someone, that is not teaching someone to work under pressure, the, the actual pressure. In combat, you don't have a horrible asshole bully making you do press-ups. There's enough going on that that would not help. And then uh, at the extreme end of it is like going, you know, okay, initiations and hazing. When done well, can be useful for a sports team to bring people in when there's some kind of structure and discipline to it, whether it's West Point, whether it's in the Naval Academy, where they have they have certain traditional things that they've always done that people a right of passes that they go through. Yes. But if it's happening in a dark corner, it's not teaching anyone to work under pressure. It is, it's is just abuse it's just a certain character who is not in control of himself who who doesn't have the courage to do the work to master the work to master the craft you know as a martial arts teacher or instructor is is that you know i mean the classic is, is the karate kid there's elements of truth in cobra kai and, and miyagi yep. you know at some point in the karate miyagi tells him no 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 now you just get angry whatever you want to do you know there's a point there's like going you've got to master these things Mm -hmm. and you can see the challenge of the two colliding but it's the same again It's one is one is about skill and mastery of oneself and one is about destruction and and all that kind of thing so um i think that idea of of pressure forces mistakes so if you're putting someone under pressure deliberately as a leader you should expect mistakes unless you've taught them what to look for and you've left you unless you taught them the thing that could go wrong, which is where the experts come in and they can kind of and help you through that. And same with anyone else. Um, because once you know when or why you might make a mistake, then A, you will work slightly differently, or B, you'll be ready and more adaptable because you are there going, everything, everything I'm doing right now, I'm tired, I'm this, I'm that this is delicate work I need to kind of step out of it and I, I think I mentioned before we started the call of this aperture of, the, of your focus Like like when you are under pressure when you're tired when you're fatigued when you are going through a, a demanding life-changing experience whether it's a loss of a child whether it's divorce or anything else the aperture can seem very very small and you can it's just like you can barely see through it but when you start to do your breathing techniques when you discipline when you move when you go for a walk when you talk to someone you care about and get some support from a comrade the aperture widens and you can do more and be more adaptable and i think it's much harder to adapt when it's so so kind of tight and narrow and um you know we talked just before you know this this journey i've been through from from joining the marines to kind of dealing with death to learning about stoicism, to being interested in human error and why we make mistakes to Figuring out how to adapt, to trying to turn that into a way how I can help by coaching people to understand their own finitude, and, and then how to make their own choices and changes to, to anticipate problems in advance and adapt. You know, you come full circle around to John Boyd, who I, you know I know you've spoken to, spoken about before, of not just the loop, but what is the loop other than a cycle of learning and improving constantly and you know in the uk there's certainly there's a there's a view um that it's just a military thing and it's about competing and it's about doing it faster than the other opponent and it's, it's a shame because it's it kind of reduces boyd who studied everything
1: yes
2: not just the military so he connected ancient battles to toyota kaizen so to evolution and, and all kinds of things. And and arguably the OODA loop would have changed if he'd if he survived. But a year before he dies, he comes up with this model.
1: And for our listeners, a, or, can you tell us, can we review what the OODA loop actually stands for? What yes yeah, yeah, sorry. sorry so
2: so this process and and everyone just calls it the OODA. And and it started with, you know, when I when I first saw it, it was four circles O, O, D, A, with arrows. Mm-hmm. And you just keep going through it and you're trying to go through it faster than your competitor. And uh, the first one is, uh, but actually, his his actual model, and I'll, I'll share it so you can, was far more detailed mm-hmm. and with more feedback loops. So the first stage is observation. You observe what's going on, but but let's let's stick stoicism on top of the loop. Okay, you observe what's going on, and you accept the reality of what you're seeing. Okay, if you've accepted the reality of what you're seeing, you move on to orientation. And orientation is not just Okay. Orientation is your genetics, your training, your conditioning, your parenting, your education, the school you went to, the leader you work for will, will affect how you orientate your problem. If your leaders not want bad news, you will change your, that will change your view of a problem. So that, and, but orientation phase is critical phase. It's about diversity of thinking, diversity of background. So, so the, the orientation phase works best with a team. Because they can all see things differently. They've all got different backgrounds, different orientations, different education. Men, women, anything you want. They've, they're all looking at the problem differently, and that's more information, not less. Right. Then you, then the D is you make a decision, which is a test or a hypothesis, and then you take action, which is the execution, but is also the I've, I've decided this might be hypothesis. Is this? I'm going to test it. Now, like any scientific method, you then observe again and you yes. reorientate and you decide and you act yeah. and you keep going through it and and you know Boyd's approach was basically this is this is the, this is it this is life we are in mm. this cycle all the time yeah okay in conversations um in restaurants when you're cooking something mm-hmm. when you're in a martial arts stage, you're there going okay that that method is- now my experience with the military is that people felt that once they made a decision they were done and they could let the action would take care of itself, and they could walk away and they could leave you do it. it's it, you, you can leave it and because you i'm a general and i've got my ego this way you get jock at all my egos like, i can leave you luke because i'm so good at this i've made a decision i've made a decision and out they go leave the room get on with it and everyone in the room is just going that's a terrible decision okay and he's left he's not observing she's not observing they've gone and then you see it go wrong and you've got to orientate and you've got to correct. It. So my my take on whether it's coaching or anything else is, I mentioned um, my friend uh, Mark McGrath and, and Brian who, who have a podcast called No Way Out. They call it No Way Out because they're, they're trying to help people understand Boyd and get his work out to as many people as possible because it's... Not just critical for business; it's not just critical for the nations. Critical for individuals to understand. And and I said this with a, a load of private equity executives last week. as I was like going? I said it in the wrong way. I was like going, you know, I love this. There's no way out. They call their podcast No Way Out because because like, there's no way out of this loop. You've got to accept there's no way out. When you accept there's no way out, you are constantly observing, orientating, deciding, acting, and then observing again. When you accept there's no way out, you've accepted reality. You can adapt. You can really adapt and you can learn and improve and get better and you can get better at getting better if you think there's a way out you're not going to get better you're not going to learn and improve and when it goes wrong you're going to blame and punish and you're going to come back to the room and and say this is i i left it when i left the decision was great and i've come back and it's gone wrong that's on you there's no learning there and and if there's no learning there's no growth so if you ever come across a leader who is who blames, you know, in the main blame tries to find who did something wrong rather than what went wrong or why it went wrong. Right. Then you've got this, you've got this point where there's no learning. And if there's no learning, there's no growth. And if there's no growth, the business will fail yes. because there's no ability to adapt. And you can you can shrink it right down to just getting up in the morning and going, Oh, there's no way out. Big smile, mm-hmm. start adapting, start changing your mindset, start moving. Or you sit at one point and just do nothing.
1: And there's there's so much more to avoid than that. But well, and, just, and just like you're saying, the being able to observe and orient is fine. But as you're saying, the quality of that decision that you make and then the action you take thereafter is what dictates where else that yeah. loop continues. As you say, the loop can either elevate us to a better level, a better performance, a better t- leader, a better teacher, or we... Again, yeah. we we're going downwards and now it's like now I'm stuck in this victim oodle loop. Now I'm stuck in this yeah. area where I don't want to take accountability. I don't want to take responsibility. Like you said, that leader that leaves the room, it's easy for them to, to point out all the the problems that everybody had when they left. But again, they weren't necessarily there at the time or they weren't experiencing the rest of those things. Therefore, it's a good indication, as you say, once we accept that there is really no other other option we make peace with the idea that this will just be the continual. This is it. This is the hero's journey. This is what we have to do. And once we we hit the top of this mountain, there's always another one or there's always another day. Yeah. And that's our choice. How do we decide to go towards this thing? Even with adversity, the meaning that we attach to the adversity is everything. Yeah. If if we think that it's this thing that is unfair and oppressive and it's, it's keeping me down here, and that's exactly what it will be. But if I see it as this catalyst that forces me, when I have no other choice, the choice is simple: I have to become a person that can get beyond this thing. And whether yeah. it be in battle, or whether it be in my own personal life, I can either stay here, or I can decide once I'm sick of being in this place. Damn it, I'm gonna have to do something, and yeah. then we allow that to orient, observe. Yeah, decide, and you've—I you, mean—you've been through that, and,
2: and absolutely, you know when. The, the guys on the No Way Out podcast, Mark and Brian, are kind of like, you know, this this approach, alongside some other approaches, is is perfect for complexity. And what is you know what is complexity if not adversity? You know, this situ- complexity is when there's so there's, you know, it's a classic Rumsfeld known unknowns. You, the stuff I don't know about the situation, the stuff the stuff going on I'm not aware of. You know, we the action the decision. We we tend to tie to doing something. As long as you decide, as long as it's a, a conscious, thought out decision, it's a strategic choice. Mm-hmm. Then not doing something can also be okay. a, something to observe. We're kind of hooked on action, and it's great. Bias fraction books and things like that, are great. But sometimes it's like, especially in complex situations, where doing something is adding to the complexity. You, you're already, you don't even know what's going on, and then you're going to add another thing, and then you'll see. It's got more complex, not less. Whereas, actually, if you, with going back to Stoic philosophy, it's like, but if you if you stop doing something you control, if you can pull a lever back and stop that activity, it might be some kind of addictive behavior. It might be something you're doing personally. If you can stop that behavior, then you can then see, observe what happens when you stop doing that, and you're going to get feedback from stopping. Same as a business, you know, it's very complex financial times at the moment, inflation, and all the things that are going on, and people are we, we need to do something. That's the instinctive thing. We need to do something, and I would say, as a coach, someone's like, "I need to do something." This is this. like everything's too much. Things going on. It's like, no. do something. But you, you're not aware of everything that's going on. Try stopping something. Try stopping something in the business, because at least then you can measure and get some feedback from you stopping the activity.
1: Yeah. Sometimes um, the best action is inaction.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and. But it's, as long as it's a choice, a strategic choice, intentional strategic, yes, yeah, and intentionally strategic. And, um, and there's a guy called Todd Conklin who's a great. Um, if you, you can find some of his stuff, and he he's, his line is basically: you can blame and punish, which is the victim, or you can learn and improve. But you can't do both. And if something's gone wrong in your organisation or in your family or in your life, and you think the answer is to find out who's responsible and punish them, there's no learning there. And it doesn't mean it's not going to happen again, because you haven't tried to understand the context of the behavior and why the person did it in the first place. So you kind of have this journey of kind of, you know, when I go back to dealing with families, I was constantly adapting because they were were under an awful lot of pressure because of the situation. They were predictable in one way, but sometimes unpredictable in others. And we had to just live with that. We had to adapt and work around them. We could you can't just stop someone, no, 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 that's not acceptable. So I get no, you can behave, you this is all yours, and create the space for them to do it. It's creating the space sometimes we create the space as a leader for someone to to do to go through a process rather than telling them and directing. What What does a martial artist do? He creates the space for the opponent or the student to learn. That's why that's why the great martial arts movies are the ones we
1: watch. Yeah. The, if you're a black um, belt, you bring yourself just a little bit above whatever that person's level is, like yeah. you say, so that now it's, it's within reach and it allows them to try to get to that place without feeling like there's no way I could possibly counter this or correct or win. Yeah. And that's what we do. And when you and I were speaking before, I love this idea that you have when you coach with companies or when you come in, because you and I have seen this when you have this big multi million dollar company, And they'll hire consultants to come in and they'll spend a lot of money for, you know, this survey or this, you know, data collection or whatever it is. And all they do is tell them the stuff that they already know is a problem. It's like Yeah, but McKinsey told us. So it's definitely a problem. So it's true. (laughs) Exactly right. So you could ask them, what do you feel the issues are? You could probably get that. And then, like you said, you're running through this. You're just kind of reaffirming what they know and then they kind of leave. But that's where you and I are different. Well, not you and I, you and I are in the same in that we're the coach, we're with them. It's like, okay, we can do these things if you want, but chances are there's a handful of things that everybody knows we need to work on. We can prioritize which of those things is the biggest elephant in the room. I've literally had people say, Marcus, I don't care about my people. I just want you to figure out why my morale is so bad. And that's yeah. and and half the people in the room gave me the look that you did. The other half of the people in the room were like, "T. Swift is like, yeah, what are you going to do?" It's like yeah. that's that's where we're going to start, guys. Let's just and
2: it's up. Like, yeah, people are not the problem. People are the problem solvers. That's the thing. The people. If you care for your people, if you genuinely care and they know it, they will get your company out of, out of the shin. They will stay the long hours. They will do the work because they want to because they care for the company. They care yes. for you. They care for the business because they know you care for them. When you see people as just extractive you know, and, and elements of, what well, was Boy's key thing, and you, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll link you with Mark and and Brian, P- Rivera, the no way out of People first, then ideas, then things, systems, equipment. Just work on your people. They're amazing. Humans are amazing. We survived. We survived all over the planet in every environment. We've adapted. We're incredibly adaptable. You know, we're adaptable now. You look at how, you know, the things that are going on in the world we are still having conversations. Life is difficult in you know. Don't know what the temperature is where you are. I've heard it's quite warm it, in America. It's,
1: it's yeah, it's in triple digits it's, here.
2: Yeah, it's warm in Europe. You know, I say warm is super hot in Europe. I mean, it's yeah. Britain. God bless Britain. I mean, it's it's lovely. It's just right <laughs> here. Um, but you know, I think it's this idea. You know, this idea of just going when I when I talk about coaching and coaching as a kind of reset is we talked about the idea of pushing to burnout let's work everyone really hard because we don't care about people and if they get burnout we'll get someone else in. and then you see the executives who get to burnout and then they become zealots for the, the completely other end of passive you know woke wellness or whatever you want to call it i don't think that's the right term but my friend has another term for it i won't say it out loud it also begins in w which is just suddenly that's not good because that's not there's nothing going on there either and, and you've been put there. You've put yourself there by not understanding performance at all. If you understand human performance, you know that you, that's not sustainable. Olympic athletes do the Olympics once every four years, nice. not once a week. You know, to get to the Olympics where they are the top of their game, they, they are losing races in the four years between races, between the Olympics to get a goal. And, but they're training, and they're different things. But what they're not doing is zeroing out. They might get two days off a month, depending on what sport they're doing, if they are sponsored anything else. Um, but that's actual proper rest of just physically a, a physical reset. So the idea, you know, my my idea now is is you should be in control of your own rest, and therefore you're in control of your own reset. Not not a, not the on off. Okay. Not fully on, full power, fully off, zero power. It's you control that dial. And once you start to understand that you control that dial, then you'll start to dial in your own sleep, your own sleep. You'll start to dial in your own intake of alcohol or digital intakes. You'll start to just add some control measures that are very stoic, that are in your control. I choose to not turn that TV on. I choose to not do that. You know, I'm, I'm as good as anyone else of, of sometimes just going. You know, I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to eat that and I'm going to drink that and I'm going to watch that. Okay, but it's a choice, right? That's the the kind of place I'm going now with this kind of idea of rest and reset is more dialed in. Or you know, it's a philosophy. At the end of the day, it's a love of knowledge. You go, why why is this important? And it's because everything counts when you when you've been in the military, when you've been in an elite marine unit, an elite commander unit, when you've been in an elite army unit, a life unit, especially. When you've been in those, those spaces, you know, when you are carrying your own ammunition, your own equipment, your own food, everything counts. You better clean your feet. You better clean your weapon. You better know how to cook. You better make, know how to ration your own water. You better know how to usefully help your buddy. Yeah. You, you better be squared away yourself because otherwise you're a liability to the team. So that's where unselfishness really is unselfishness. Is not about constantly giving yourself to someone else. Unselfishness is about making your squared away so you've got spare. Strength for two is a kind of the whole heroic strength for two. Yeah. And, and to have strength for two, you've got to work on yourself. So I'm kind of, you know, I'm still on this cycle. It's early days of just figuring out what I'm going to do next. But, but it's going through that process of anticipating. So I'm ready. Being ready to adapt, and then if I've got those things, and I'm ready to learn all the time, then achieve is the next bit. You know, yeah. there's there's a I'm improving my chances of achieving success in business or in life in the face of arguably a, a quite challenging year. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. And I I love that, Mark Hardy. Where can we learn more about you? Where can we get the book? Can we hire you as coach, as a coach? Do we have a program? Where can we, our listeners, go and learn to support you and learn more about what you're up to? So um, the company website is decisionpoint.uk, www.decisionpoint.uk.
2: The book website is www.thinklikeamarine.com. And then any anything around the book, which I'm trying to do resources for schools and, and mm-hmm. educators. And um, we'll be able to think like a Marine's website and anything about reset and rest and, and decision point will be on the decision point website. And I'm
1: on and LinkedIn. Then, yeah, so reaching out to you on, on LinkedIn would work as well?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Easy to do that too. Yeah.
1: So reach out, connect, send a message. tell them. Yeah, what, anything. What anything people want, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. you're speaking a, a lot as well, correct?
2: Um, Starting to slowly.
1: You're available for speaking, yeah. Yeah, I'm available <laughs> for speaking, but yeah. I haven't done a lot, but I'm, yeah. Well, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to want to speak to you after this conversation. And the, the idea is everybody, if you're listening to us now, you know I'm not going to have somebody on the show that I don't vet, don't believe in, and don't think that they have something valuable and robust to offer. And if you're listening to this conversation, whether you're a veteran, whether you're a a, a philosophical person, whether you own a business, you're a co-founder, and you're going through some sort of either adversity or you're trying to understand where is this? Where's the problem? Where's the chink in the armor in this organization? I think that Mark Hardy would be a great fit for you and um, reach out to him. He's going to give you 20, over 30 years of leadership in some of the most adverse conditions. And frankly, with all the people that are out there, uh, I can't think of a better man for the job. Thanks, Thanks, Marcus. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for being on. I could, I could talk to you for hours and I'm sure we'll yeah. speak again. I've got a good dinner. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for your time. We'll talk to you next time, hey? Hey,
0: take care, Marcus. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to marcusareliusanderson.com join his Octa Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.